We have for some time been in the last third of the book, and now we're in the last week of Jesus' life. And today, Jesus' passion, the things that are unfolding of his coming to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins and to return to the Father for our justification, that passion, the grief, the humiliation that Jesus has undergone, we are now in the section of the passion That involves the trial. Various gospel writers refer to other trials. Mark mentions this one trial today and then before Pilate, as we'll see next week. Our scripture reading comes from Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. And again, I would remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed, a second time. And Peter remembered 
how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Receive it with careful attention. Let us pray. Father, again, give us light and understanding as we look at this portion of your holy word. Father, thank you for the one you sent to bring us home and that he would be willing to undergo such things as we read about today. Father, but thank you that you're not through with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard Dawkins, an Oxford professor, has become somewhat famous for his vicious and unabashed attacks on God and on Christianity. One of his books is entitled The God Delusion. Unfortunately, for Mr. Dawkins, he knows much about as much about theology as I know about zoology. He is a man whose greatest expertise is his ability to popcorn string an impressive array of accusations and innuendos one after another without proof, and he's infamous for his syllogistic Fallacies. You know what a philogistic, uh, philo, can't say it. <laughs> syllogistic fallacy. That's something in which the premise that you start with may be true, but the conclusions that you reach do not logically follow. Premise may be verifiable, but what you are concluding and what you are res- uh, concluding from that may be completely and utterly not connected and be false. Dawkins Dawkins is deluded by his own sense of intellectual superiority. He enjoys sitting in judgment on God. And he has tried him and found God guilty. Now, you say, what's all that got to do with today? What we just read. Well, people did the same thing here in this text. They did the same thing as they sat in judgment, presumed to sit in judgment over God in the flesh, in his son, Jesus Christ. And you know what? They weren't the last ones to do it. The Dawkinses of the world are still doing it. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in one of his books, God in the Dock. We have, as human beings, a propensity to put God in the witness stand, put him on trial, and we are judge and jury and prosecutor. And that's exactly what was happening today. Today, our outline in the trial goes like this. The divine... The divine person that was being put on the stand and tried. The degraded 
What happened is they continued to pummel Jesus and degrade him physically and, and emotionally and, and then the denied, the one that once again, the focus comes back on Peter and his denial. Let's look at these in the text. The divine basically covers verses 53 through 56. Now, remember, Judas has just betrayed Jesus, we saw in the garden. Came and took him by force after the sealing his doom with a kiss. And then the guards took him. And the rest of the disciples scattered to the four winds. The temple guards then took Jesus to be tried in before the Sanhedrin. That's the 70 judges of Israel made up of scribes and Pharisees and other religious leaders. But the only thing that was, they were kind of like a Supreme Court, if you want to think of it that way in our day. But instead of nine, 70. And they were kind of like a Supreme Court, but certainly not in, in their justice. The only thing supreme about this course, uh, court was its supreme injustice. After his arrest, John tells us briefly, John, we're in Mark's gospel, but in John's gospel, he does say that before Jesus was taken to the high priest Caiaphas, he was first taken to his father-in-law, the former high priest, Annas. And then after that, he was taken, but Mark records when he was taken to Caiaphas. Now, this was very late in the night, in the middle of the night. And the Pharisees were not, or the Sanhedrin was not to have nighttime meetings. Their business was to be done openly in the light of day. But that wasn't happening. While they were waiting for the Sanhedrin to gather, they had to basically go and get them, get them out of their beds, get, get them dressed enough to come and convene in Caius's house. And while they were waiting for that to happen, Jesus was being entertained by Caiaphas and his ghouls. Basically, if you've ever been to Jerusalem and seen the pit of Caiaphas where those that were not responding the way that they were supposed to were beaten by guards and abused and spat upon. Now remember the disciples, as I said, had scattered. They had had disappeared. But Peter somehow found enough courage to follow Jesus, but not too close. Not too close from a safe distance. So he thought. He thought he could be in proximity to what was happening to Jesus, but he wasn't going to go and do anything foolish. He was beginning to realize this thing is going very, very wrong. So he was trying to blend in with those around him at the campfire in Caiaphas's courtyard. Now, Mark just mentions that to put Peter in place. And then he comes back to the story. More to come on Mark. 
on Peter when he returns from the trial. Now, the attempt to put Jesus on trial was an absolute and utter travesty of justice. It was from the get-go absolutely a ruse. Normally, as I said, the Sanhedrin would hold its sessions in the daylight. In the marketplace near a, a, a place called the Temple of the Chamber of Hewn Stone. The Chamber of Hewn Stone. But they intended to try Jesus at night to conceal their malfeasance, which is their absolute corrupt intent. They had no intention of Jesus being tried in a fair trial. This was a kangaroo court, if there ever was one. They knew, they knew that they were trying an innocent man who had done nothing that was truly against God's law or their law. But that did not satiate their bloodlust to kill him. But the problem was they couldn't get any evidence They had certain rules about their witnesses, and they tried many, and they kept trying more, and yet they all were basically not able to corroborate their stories. They were contradicting themselves over and over and over again. So it it picks up with the degraded in verses 57 through 65. Now things continue to go down. Mark tells us about the actions, further actions of this kangaroo court. Because they had to have, in a case of a capital crime, and that's what they were trying Jesus for, was a capital offense in order to be able to put him to death. They didn't want to just set him aside or or kind of move him down. No, they wanted to eliminate him completely. And in order to do that, they had to get two witnesses that could corroborate the same thing they had seen. And the problem, though, was Caiaphas was having trouble because they were in no way able, none of the witnesses able to corroborate the same story. You know, it's hard to get people to lie alike. Have you ever noticed that? When people decide to lie, it's hard if they're separate and they're not hearing each other, to lie the same story. But that's what Caiaphas was up against. Now Caiaphas, about this point, he's beginning to get really frustrated because they've been at this for a long time. And yet he can't get any evidence. So he starts trying to get Jesus to basically do something, say something that will basically confess his own guilt. Jesus now answers, I mean, excuse me. So Jesus, the problem is, Jesus is not answering the questions. So Caiaphas says, starts throwing things at him. Answer me. And Jesus just sits there, stands there and will not answer. And finally, Caiaphas decides to ask, get cut to the chase. Asked this question in verse 61. He says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ? That's the Messiah. He's asking him, Is he the Messiah? 
are you also the son of the blessed? Now, what does that mean? The word blessed there is what you call a circumlocution, which is a substitute. It's a technique that the Jews used to avoid saying the name of God. They were so careful, they didn't want to say Yahweh, God's name. So they would always substitute something else, but you would understand that he meant God. The use of the word blessed was such a term. It was a way for the Jews to avoid using the name of Caiaphas, but I mean, name of, name of God. But Caiaphas really, really knew what he was asking Jesus when he said, are you the son of the blessed? He was saying, Jesus, are you claiming to be the son of God? Are you claiming to be both Messiah and the son of the living God? Even though he used the word blessed, he, that's what his intent. And Jesus, this time, breaks his silence and answers Caiaphas, but with more than he bargained. Listen to this. And Jesus said to him, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Boy, did he answer Interestingly, Jesus in his reply, you know what? He used circumlocution too. He substituted something. He substituted power for God. But he, when he says, when you see me at the right, seated at the right hand of power, he's saying, when I'm at the right hand of God where I belong and where I've always been until I've come here to do what I've come to do. And I'm going back there. You see, Jesus was in essence saying, you're right, you got it. I am the son of God and I came from heaven and I'm going back and I'm going to be the one who is going to judge you all and everyone else in this world. That's the statement Jesus is making to him. Now, by the way, This is not the last time that these guys that night in Caiaphas' house, the Sanhedrin, this is not the last time they will meet Jesus in the context of a trial. And if I'm writing my exposition of Mark 13 and that this was referring to something that would happen in the advance of the gospel after the resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem, setting the stage for the new world that Jesus would be bringing. He was basically saying, and you guys sitting in this room, you're going to see it. You're going to see my power coming. You're going to see me coming in glory and the Shekinah glory of God. And you're going to see the new world that I'm bringing but he means a second sense too. You're also going to face me in the final judgment. Both, I believe, were true. Caiaphas maybe understood one and not the other, or maybe he did get the implication of both. 
Remember in Mark 13, it said, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, moon and will, will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth unto heaven. Jesus is saying, you're going to see me again. You think you're about to dispatch with me? No, you will have dealings with me in your lifetime and then you will face me in the day of judgment. When it's appointed unto men once to die and after that, the judgment. Now, with that, how do you think Caiaphas responded? Eh, good, Jesus ripped his robes to shred, probably exposed himself in his nakedness as he tore in anger and cried out like a banshee. Caiaphas went apoplectic, ripping his robes and screaming blasphemy. And quickly and summarily, they condemned Jesus to death. And then they essentially put him in the bull ring. You know what a bull ring is? Some of you folks that have played football, you know, and if you were old enough, now you wouldn't, you wouldn't see this happen today, you'd be, the coach would be thrown in jail. But when I was coming along and playing football, everybody knew what the bull ring was. You did not want to go there. Because basically, it was monkey in the middle and everybody else surrounding you, a whole sucker, a circle of football players. And because of something you did wrong, one after another would come and hit you. Sometimes you didn't even see one coming. Just crash into you one after another until you crumbled and cried and broke and begged for mercy. Pummeling one after another. That's what they were doing to Jesus. Throwing a cloak over him so, and then smack him with their fist and their knuckles so he couldn't and say, prophesy, tell us who you are, Jesus. Who hit you? Was it him or me? Jesus was in their version of a bull ring. Now, the denied is in verses 66 through 72. In verse 66, we see something interesting. While the trial of Jesus was going on upstairs, Downstairs, in the courtyard, there was another trial going on. The trial of Peter and his faithfulness. Remember he said, I will follow you to the death if need be, Jesus. Let's see how Peter's doing with that. Mark returns to Peter's problem. And he's finding it rather hard to blend in. Remember, he's a Galilean. He's a redneck from the hills of Galilee. And he's got a very, very apparently noticeable accent. And so, he's trying to blend in, but all of this blows his cover. And this girl starts questioning him. You, you heard the questions. Hey, weren't you, uh, aren't you from Galilee? No, no, not, not me. And then, 
hey, you know, she comes back again. And then the third time, finally, when the, Peter's third denial comes, he's literally cussing mad. He is literally cursing and swearing that he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He may have been cussing like a sailor, or he may have been basically saying, the light, lightning strike me if I'm not telling the truth. And of course, he was absolutely lying. He was ashamed. He was afraid. And then, just as Jesus said, he hears the rooster crow for the second time. Peter realizes he has failed the best friend he has ever had or ever will have. He has let down the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him or would give himself for him. And he burst into tears. Now, do you know that night, fateful night, there were two rocks. Peter, remember, was called the rock, little, little rock, by Jesus. And Jesus was the rock that followed God's people in the wilderness. He was the rock that gave the water, living water, of survival in the desert. He is the rock that is without human hands made that will become a, a rock that will fill the whole world. But here are these two rocks, Peter and Jesus. And that night, they both met the challenge of their lives. The question is, what made one stand and hold fast and be true to the end? And what made the other one bail in cowardice and fear? The answer is pretty simple. Self-dependence. Self-reliance is what sunk Peter. But God-reliance is what preserved the Son of God. Don't you remember how many times you've read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, and you see Jesus over and over and over again showing absolute and utter dependence on his Father? That's why Peter failed. He was not depending on the Father. He was depending on Peter his own assets, his own tools, his own self-reliance. You see, Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, even He knew, Jesus knew when He was on this earth, that even perfect humanity, which He was, could not succeed in accomplishing the Father's will apart from dependence daily, constantly on the Father. That's why he was able to endure the suffering, the pain, and what the cup that he had to drink in order to accomplish the Father's purpose. I love this quote by Vance Habner. It gets right at our tendency to be so self-reliant. I think I have to confess my self-reliance and my independence and sin to God 
maybe even greater than a lot of the other ones that probably I struggle with and you do too. But that one is one of the most egregious. That I can go through a day acting as if I got this, I'm in control. Instead of a constant, Father, what, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to see? Show me what you want me. Reliance that Jesus betrayed constantly for his Father. But listen to this hopeful quote by Vance Habner. And Peter should have, should have known this. And eventually Peter did get it. Because the Lord wasn't through with him. Vance Abner said, The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness. So we teamed up. The Lord had the strength and I have the weakness. So we're going to make a good team. And it was an unbeatable combination. Peter could have known that. And he did come eventually. Because he didn't end up like Judas. Jesus said, I'm going before you to Galilee. I'm not giving up on you, Peter. You're going to fail, and you're going to fail miserably. But it's not going to be fatal, and it's not going to be final. Because I am the Son of God. And I have come for you, Peter, and I'm not going to let you go. And Satan's desire to sift you like wheat, and he is going to tumble you, but I'm going to restore you. I'm not through with you, and I'm not going to let you go. See, the story of failure and weakness and brokenness is such an encouragement to you and me that this self-reliant, boastful, foolish man would become one of the apostles that would be willing to readily give his life to die for his Savior. And because of Jesus and what he's done for me and you, brothers and sisters, if you know him, if you've trusted in Christ, then you need to know when you fail and when you falter, it is not and will not be final, and it's not fatal. It will carry you on the other side of Jordan, the other side of death, and to glory so that where he is, you will be also if you are his. What an encouragement that we have so great a Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for your great love for sinners, for weak, frail, fallen men and women, boys and girls like me, and like everyone that understands truly who they are before you. But thank you, Jesus, that you came and you did everything that is necessary to bring us home from our failure and not let it overwhelm us and overcome us. That you're not going to stop. You began the good work in us. Lord, continue to perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. And don't let us go. Hold us. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.